Hello and welcome to Extraordinary Outback Stories, a podcast about extraordinary people living in the bush. You're joined by regional journalists Lucy Samuels and Lucy Taylor. Hello. How are you? Like the first thing we did was to weigh our own galaxy. That was the first result that came from Ray, because you can do that by knowing how fast things are moving. So we weighed our galaxy. <laughs> 1.4 trillion times the mass of the sun was the answer we got. Wow. <laughs> Hello and welcome back. This week we sat down with the master of the dark sky. Ooh. Sounds interesting. It is. Fred Watson is an outback astronomer who was in charge of the Australian Astronomical Observatory at Coonabarabran Siding Spring Observatory for 25 years. He's answered questions like why galaxies collide, why the moon is gradually drifting away from Earth, why Uranus is upside down, I think one was one of them as well. And he's also got an asteroid named after him. He sure does. And it's still orbiting Earth, isn't it? Yes, and it's not his fault if it crashes into us. I love it how he told us that. We'll go into detail about that later. But he's also answering some of the most profound questions facing humankind. As you might have heard, Fred isn't Australian. And in this chat, we explore his move from Edinburgh to Australia what brought him out here and why he decided to stay in a tiny outback town. This is Fred Watson. Can you tell us a little bit about the day in the life of an astronomer? astronomer. It's not what you might think because most astronomers tend to work in universities and they will have a project that they're working on which will be trying to answer some specific scientific questions like why is the universe like it is, you know, all of the big picture stuff and a lot of small picture stuff as well, which basically feeds into it. So what they do is they formulate what they need to know, what observations they might need with a telescope, which could be anywhere in the world. Then they apply for time on the telescope and they might get four nights or something like that on a big telescope. Um, And then if they're lucky, they'll get clear weather, they get their observations, everything works. And then they go away and spend the next two years turning what they got for the few nights' work that they've done into the, you know, the answers to the, the questions they've, they've asked. So many questions to ask, isn't there, in astronomy? It's the whole thing, yeah. yeah. Why are we here? Are yeah. we alone? Is there life beyond Earth? Uh, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and what's it like if there is? So th- these are all things that people focus on. My job was slightly different though, because uh, an astronomer working in a national institution, as it then was, which was called the Australian Astronomical Observatory, it was a national observatory up at uh, Coonabarabran. Um, So I was effectively the shopkeeper as the astronomer in charge, which meant that a lot of the focus that I did was actually just on keeping the telescopes running, usually watching on the sidelines while clever people mended things (laughs) and stuff like that. So it was all about making the facility available for other people to use it. I did use them myself, usually as part of a big team. I was project manager for one project that went for 13 years. Yeah, 13 years. It just wrapped up. Um, And uh, for for that, I was observing on the telescope five nights a month for the whole duration of it. And that, so that gave me a different focus. I was very much a, you know, a fly-by-night person. I'd worked for 
for five nights on the telescope, and then the day job was the other three three weeks of the or three four weeks of the the month. Yeah, tell us of your time in Coonabarabra and, and basically what you're doing at Siding Springs Observatory. So I was there twice. So and it's what brought me to Australia. You, you might pick the accent is not from Coonabarabra. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> no, definitely can't, not. I can't actually do an Aussie accent. I've lived here for almost forty years. On and off. Have you got a close impression? Like no, it's it's rubbish. I wouldn't do it. I do it on our podcast and they'll fall about laughing. So. <laughs> I can do other accents, but not that one. Um, So uh, I was working as an astronomer in the Royal Observatory in Edinburgh, and I was doing a project that needed the big telescope at Coonabarabran, and that's what brought me here several times just on short trips to do what I've just described, get your four nights or whatever, get your data and go away and reduce it all. And uh, so my first trip was in 1978. Sadly, the first three trips were wiped out by rain, Um, and the locals started calling me Fred the farmer's friend because every time I came, it started raining. (laughs) They loved that, as you do when you're on the land. Um, But eventually, um, I did get my data. But more than that, it turns out that the Royal Observatory in Edinburgh actually operated one of the telescopes at Siding Spring as an outstation. So this was um, something called the United Kingdom Schmidt Telescope, it's now operated by the ANU, in fact. But then it was the Royal Observatory Edinburgh that operated it. So the staff were circulated around. There were six scientific staff there and six local staff as well. And that's what brought me to live in Australia. I was there for 10 years. It was a three-year secondment, but the project I was working on took off in a big way. So I stayed for 10, then went back to Edinburgh, stayed there for a year, went to Cambridge, stayed there for two years or something, then came back as astronomer in charge. And I forgot what the question was, but that kind of, you know, that's, that's what I did. I was, there. for the latter part, my job was to be responsible to the director of the observatory who was here in Sydney. And my duties were basically to, um, to maintain the scientific output of the telescopes. By then we had two. We had the Schmidt Telescope and the Anglo-Australian Telescope. And backtracking a little bit, yeah. why did you fall in love with astronomy? Oh, that goes back hundreds of years. (laughs) Uh, It honestly goes back to, it's not quite hundreds of years, but it's basically my childhood, um, which was a long time ago. So um, I grew up not long after the Second World War. I I was at school in the 50s and 60s. And at that time, science was absolutely in the ascendancy because there'd just been a world war that had been fought largely on technical and scientific grounds with radar and nuclear weapons and all of that. And everybody thought there was going to be another one. And so it was the start of the space age, the first artificial satellite launched in 1957. There was, you know, all kinds of things happening. I often attribute uh, my interest, though, at that time to a kid's comic, which actually was more than a comic, more like a children's newspaper called The Eagle, whose front page featured Dan Dare, the pilot of the future. (laughs) And it, it, you know, Dan Dare was just brilliant. (laughs) <laughs> you um, wanted to be Dan Dare. I wanted to, uh, we all wanted to be Dan Dare. Some of us thought we were. <laughs> but, um, so all of that, you know, all the kids that I went to school with were mad on astronomy and space science and the whole thing. And then as we grew up, they became doctors, engineers, technicians of various kinds, but I just never grew up. So I was fixated from a, an early age. And while I was at school, uh, it became a real hobby, so I made telescopes and things like that. And then went to university to study astronomy. And um, in terms of Siding Springs Observatory, what 
were you looking into specifically with that project that you're mentioning before? Yeah, so the, the one I've just mentioned, uh, it was called RAVE, which is an acronym. Uh, it was a great one because we could have RAVE ups and we could RAVE on and all that sort of thing. stands for Radial Velocity Experiment. So what we were doing was like a population census, which you would do with people. You know, every 10 years you get this form to fill in with all the details that the population people are trying to ascertain. Um, and then from that you can work out general trends and you can also look at for the outliers and things like that. So we were doing the same thing with stars, but not sending a form. Um, there's an instrument that I was kind of responsible for uh, on that telescope that let you measure the intimate details of 150 stars at once rather than one at a time. So we used that to gather the data on half a million stars. And then you can do all these studies about where they are, where they're going, because the radial velocity is the motion of a star towards or away from you. And that was the first thing we were trying to find, to look at the motions of stars within our own galaxy. Uh, but we later realised we could do a lot more, like the chemistry of the stars, their temperatures, their surface, how big they are, things of that sort. So all of that fed into it. So it was really... It's what we call a survey. This was a 10-year project in the observing scheme. We did another three years while we put everything together um, to get as much information on, uh, on as many stars as we could, not just for stamp collecting, but so these analyses could be carried out. How many stars do you think that you looked at over that time? We, we did half a million. Oh, half, wow. yeah. half a million so, stars? Yeah. So, you know, it's a fairly sizable total. But the technology's moved on since then, and... That telescope is actually being re-equipped with new in, a, a new instrument that will push the number that you can do well into the millions, two million, three million, something like that. So it's, yeah, it's entertaining stuff. You don't sort of look at each one. What you get is the, the data. You get the information in a digital format. And like you said, you travelled across from Edinburgh yeah. and there are so many astronomers that do travel across the globe to go to yeah. Coonabarabra. Why is that? Well, at that time, uh, Coonabarabran was a bit of a mecca for British astronomers because at Coonabarabran, the Anglo-Australian telescope, the big telescope there, which is not the one we use for RAVE, but I've used that as well, um, it's called the Anglo-Australian Telescope, and the name gives it away. It was built jointly by the British and the Australians, commissioned in 1974, and that joint project gave the biggest tool that they could have to both British and Australian astronomers. So it was, you know, there was a steady stream of people coming from the UK, often like I did, to observe for just a few nights and get rained off and then go back again. <laughs> Usually yeah. they didn't. So it was very much a binational institution. And in fact, that remained until 2010 when the British, in fact, pulled out. They didn't just sort of stamp their feet and walk away. It was a very uh, controlled pull out because they wanted to join forces with the European observatories, which they did, and which now, curiously, we are too in Australia. So all of this information is shared globally yeah. between you? Yeah, so what, what happens is, like the RAVE project, there were about 60 astronomers working on that. It was led by a gentleman by the name of Professor Matthias Steinmetz, who's <laughs> in Potsdam. It was a multinational project. I was the project manager Another colleague, Thomas Fitter, who's in Slovenia, he was the project scientist. So very much an international thing. But those 60 scientists who worked on that, what we did was we collected the data. There's a lot of people 
did a lot of hard work doing the number crunching and things. I had a team of astronomers who were working on the observing. There were about five or six of us, depending on what stage it was at. So we did the observing. The team crunched the numbers. And then what you do is you publish that in a way that tells you what these insights are are that you've gained from the population study. But at the same time, and usually this will be two years after the information's been collected, the information becomes public so anybody can access it. So you could actually... Have a um, look at it. Yeah, you might not know what to do with it because it's all very esoteric. Everything becomes public in the end. Uh, Nearly all the large telescopes in the world make their data public after a proprietary period. And, you know, Coonabarabran and Siding Springs Observatory, the Warren Bungles, is a, a dark sky. It is. Can you tell us a bit about the Dark Sky Park? Yes, so part of my job, latterly in particular, for by that I mean the last 20 years of it, was to ensure that the observatory's dark skies were protected. And some work had been done before that uh, by a colleague of mine, John Dorr, sadly no longer with us. He did a lot of work on setting up mechanisms to protect the night sky of the observatory. And what you have to do is work with, the first of all, the local authorities which in those days meant the Coonabarabran Shire Council, Council, but also the state government authorities as well. And to cut a long story short, we needed to revise this legislation. And why is that? Why is it important that you have a dark sky? Yeah, OK. So stepping back from that, well, you know what it's like looking at the sky from here in Sydney. You might see 30 or 40 stars. You go to Conamble or Dubbo and stand outside, yeah. actually not the city, but further out, you'll see you see th- 3,000 stars roughly is the number that you can see in a dark night. And so that translates into the work that astronomers do. So the night sky itself has a natural background, actually. It's not completely dark. It's luminous for, for natural reasons. And astronomers are often looking at objects whose brightness is only a few percent brighter than the natural sky background. So if you've got light pollution from a sports ground or a city or whatever, that just floods out what you're trying to see. You lose the, you know, you lose the signal that you're actually trying to observe. So the Warren Bungles, are they like a natural block almost? Uh, not really. Not no. really? Actually, the principal light sources at Siding Spring that affect the night sky are Coonabarabran, Dubbo and Sydney. Really? And the Hunter Coalfield as well. They're the, bri- the brightest sources of light that affect the night sky in Coonabarabran. So, you know, so it's very, very sensitive. It's a really sensitive environment. So you're right, to some extent, the Warren Bungles block direct light from, from Dubbo. They don't block direct light from Coonamble, actually, because we can see Coonamble on the, mm. on the uh, horizon. And don't get me started about the sail yards, because <laughs> probably a couple of decades ago, but they had lights that were appalling. <laughs> Anyway, that's another story. So can you tell us a bit about, I guess, what some of your biggest discoveries that you've made in your career? Um, yes, but before I do that, let me finish the story okay. about the dark sky park Please. because we didn't get to that. Um, the legislation was put in place to keep the skies dark for the observatory. That protects the observatory out to a distance of 200 kilometres, which is further than Dubbo is. Dubbo is part and parcel of this. But because of that, it meant that we could go to the world's governing body on dark skies, which is called the International Dark Sky Association, and apply to have the Warren Bungles recognised as a dark sky park, which happened in 2016. And there are now three more in Australia. My wife, Marnie, runs something called the Australian Dark Sky Alliance, 
uh, it's an advocacy body and they essentially promote dark skies, promote dark sky parks and things of that sort. She was very instrumental in getting the Warren Bungle dark sky park through as well as other things. Discovery-wise, my job has generally been to be part of a large group to do these surveys. So it's been survey astronomy that has marked my career. In fact, if I've got any credibility at all in the world of astronomy, it's for pioneering the technology that was used to make those surveys, which uses optical fibres. In fact, there's a bit of the very first instrument that I built. There's a thing with a honeycomb structure to it, which is in the foyer of the building where you were sitting a few minutes ago. That in the early 1980s. It's a museum piece now. But that developed into technologies which are uh, micro-robotic technologies which allow us to do this trick of collecting information on many different objects at once. So I was in right at the beginning of that, and that might be where I gained any sort of scientific credibility that I have, building instruments, but then to use them to to glean all these details. Like the first thing we did was to weigh our own galaxy. That was the first result that came from Rave, because you can do that by knowing how fast things are moving. So we weighed our galaxy. (laughs) 1.4 trillion times the mass of the sun was the answer we got. Wow. (laughs) Numbers like that blow my mind. I just can't really comprehend it. In a, in a way, we can't either. We, we have all these numbers rolling through our heads, billions and millions and trillions and things. But So why do we need to know this information? So knowing the mass of the galaxy does not have a direct impact on what you and I do in our daily lives. But it's important from a scientific perspective because we know four-fifths, perhaps even five-sixths of the matter in the universe is something that's hidden from us. We call it dark matter. Uh, We know how it behaves. It's actually in this room. For every kilogram of stuff in this room, there's another five kilograms that you can't see. And we don't know what that's made of. It's some kind of subatomic particle. The subatomic particle physicists are working on this as well, but its identity is unknown. And knowing the mass of the galaxy feeds directly into that. But what any discoveries relating to that may feed into is something that could be useful to us in 100 years. So is that how long we're going to be living on Earth? Is there life beyond Earth? Are you answering questions like that? With, with this, not, not with that thing. Or this why is we're under, here? understanding the physics of the universe as a whole. But it all plays into the bigger picture. And if you look at the scientific evidence, why are we here? We're just a complete freakish accident. And in fact, most astrobiologists who are the scientists who look at the the way life has evolved on Earth and how it might have evolved in space. They, I think the consensus is that whilst microbial life might be common throughout space, and maybe what we were talking about off-camera a little while ago about phosphine on Venus, that could be evidence for the existence of microbes on Venus. We don't know yet. Uh, whilst microbial life might be common, uh, the thinking is that higher-order organisms, even multi-celled organisms rudimentary ones might be very rare throughout the universe let alone the likes of you and me some people think we're unique uh, which is really interesting because the universe is a very very big place yeah is there life beyond earth well that plays into what we've just been talking about that uh, you know yes there may be we don't know it's an open question still but uh, there's a lot of work going on on many different fields to to try and answer that question One is sending spacecraft to Mars. Perseverance, which is on its way to Mars at the moment, is designed to look for signs of past or present life on Mars. It'll get there in February next year. 
outcome, we'll be very interested to see what it finds. <laughs> but we in the world of astronomy, as distinct from space science, since uh, 1995, we've discovered over 4,000 planets going around other stars. And it probably means that every star in our galaxy has at least one planet going around it. And there are something like 400 billion stars in the galaxy. So planets are everywhere, which is something we didn't know when I started my career. Nobody knew. So we are now getting the wherewithal to study those planets and look for what are called biomarkers, which are signs of life on them. One of which is phosphine, perhaps, what's been found on Venus. And were any of these discoveries made while you were in Coonabarabran? Um, yeah, so uh, there is a project, um, certainly in terms of the, the, you know, the planets around other stars. There's a project, which was called the I, I think it's the Anglo-Australian Planet Search Program, used an instrument on the Anglo-Australian Telescope, which found something like thirty or forty of the known planets. That was in the early days because the way that we were doing that at the AAT is not the way you would do it now when you're looking for planets around other stars. There are better ways of doing it, which is why we now know 4,000 rather than a few tens. So, yeah, I was direct, not directly involved with the, that project, but sat on the sidelines cheering it on <laughs> um, and talking to some of the really interesting people who were involved with it. <laughs> and going back to Coonabarabran, how did you feel moving to a regional area? So I, I was fortunate when I came to live in Coonabarabran at first, because I knew what it was like. I'd been three or four times beforehand as a visiting astronomer to use the Anglo-Australian telescope. I had colleagues and friends there already because there were people already from the Royal Observatory in Edinburgh who were working there. And there was a little expat community within Coonabarabran. So I knew what I was getting into. And the other thing, when I came at first, I thought I was only going to be here for three years. So it wasn't like, you know, you're putting all your eggs in one basket, you're burning your boats or anything like that. I did eventually burn my boats in a fairly spectacular way, which is nothing to do with astronomy. So I came to Australia to live permanently in 1995. That was when I got the job that, of astronomer in charge. But, you know, that was the kind of point of no return because I gave up my job in the UK at that point. But I'd already had 10 years' experience of living in Coonabarabran, so it wasn't a shock. Do you like regional areas? Oh, I love it, yeah. I, I still have very, very, almost a spiritual connection with the Warren Bungles because I used to walk a lot in those mountains. I haven't done that for a long time, but I used to be all over the mountains and felt very close to, you know, the region in general and did all, all that I could as a person fortunate enough to be able to engage with the media to promote the area. Uh, and tell people, you've got to come to Coonabarabra and see, <laughs> see what there is there, and the observatory as well too. In terms of, I guess, the asteroid that's named after oh, you, I must touch on it. <laughs> 5691. Yes, Fred Watson. <laughs> yeah. How and why did this come about? Through a colleague of mine at Siding Springs. So asteroids, two sorts of small bodies in the solar system, comets and asteroids, they're quite different. Asteroids tend to be rocky, Comets are basically flying icebergs, uh, but they get very bright sometimes in the sky. There was one quite recently in the Northern Hemisphere. Comets are named after their discoverers, but asteroids are named by their discoverers. So uh, one of the most famous comets in recent years was one called Comet McNaught back in 2006. He was in Coonabarabran, wasn't he? Yeah, and yeah. he Rob. still is, yeah. actually, Rob McNaught. So 
Rob was a colleague uh, and friend and uh, in fact he still is I think <laughs> I hope so anyway <laughs> if you're listening Rob <laughs> write me a letter <laughs> tell me whether I'm still a friend <laughs> um, uh, Rob had a pretty bad time particularly in the wake of the Wombalong fire um, in 2013 terrible time however uh, before that you know, Rob had been very prominent in discovering many asteroids and decided to name one after me. It was as easy as that because of the fact that I was doing a lot in the media and things. So if it comes down, are we all doomed? <laughs> it was when I <laughs> heard about it, it was Rob actually said, you should check out fi uh, Asteroid 5691. So I looked it up online <laughs> and he said it was called Fred Watson. And my two sons were pretty young then. I went home and said, guess what? They've named an asteroid after me. And they said, Dad, that's terrible. If it hits the Earth, they'll all blame you. <laughs> the, the, the bottom line is it never will. Uh, it's a main belt asteroid. If it hits the Earth, something has gone terribly, terribly wrong. <laughs> so. When talking to you, I feel like you've got... I'm not, I'm not, I'm not judging, I'm not, <laughs> you know, psycho, I'm not like looking deep into your soul. Do you have a solicitor, Liz? <laughs> we'll talk about that later. Yeah. No. Um, do you feel like you have a firm grasp on the world? What's kind of your opinion of life on Earth? It's, that's a really interesting question because... From the perspective, you know, astronomers look at the universe at large. And so we kind of almost look at the Earth from the outside. And what have you got? You've got a cinder left over from the mm. formation of the sun. It's got all these microbes all over it who don't know how to look after the cinder that they're living on. And, you know, so what if they disappear? It's, a, it's really interesting uh, that from a cosmic perspective, human life is kind of irrelevant. And yet course to each of us as individuals it's very very important and we've all got th these lives that we lead and all the things that we do and seldom give a thought to our origins and where the earth has come from and things of that sort and often people are fascinated when they hear about it but I, I think something I said a minute or two ago perhaps flippantly but maybe it's not so flippant what if it turns out and we don't know the answer to this question that we are such a freak of nature and we might well be that we're the only ones who can actually study the universe. That is a mm. bizarre and very uncomfortable thought. Yeah. Because if, then if we do get snuffed out, what's the universe for? Yeah. No yeah, entities in it that can look at it and think, you know, this is great stuff. It, it leads to conundrums and almost brings you to a religious viewpoint that we are special in some way. Most astronomers are not religious. Some are. To be honest, I think... The study of the universe and religion are just two, two yeah. sides of the same coin, yeah. in a way. We're, we're both seeking what are the answers and, you know, trying to find out what it all means. I don't blame people for going about their daily lives, uh, not really thinking too much about the universe because it's hard work, it's day-to-day -day life. It's a lot easier now than it was 100 years ago, 200 years ago, when some big discoveries were made. But... Uh, it's still always nice to be able to talk to people about these sorts of things whenever you get the chance. Maybe there's safety and maybe not knowing. Maybe humans cannot know all. Well, that's right. That's possible. Uh, in fact, that's almost certainly true. Um, there are theorems that demonstrate that, that you can never know everything. And our experience teaches us that as well. As soon as you, as soon as you make a discovery, there's about six more things you need to know yeah. to find out what that's all about. So the science of astronomy will probably always keep going. 
I've written some pieces recently about why should you be doing a you know pursuing a science like astronomy in a time when everything's stressed a, a time of crisis which we're in at the moment with COVID nineteen. And the bottom line is, it's really interesting that astronomy and, and crisis seem to go together. A lot of discoveries were made during wars, and you know, in fact, you want us to think of Isaac Newton, who gave us our first real theory of gravity, and he was doing what we're all doing. He was in lockdown uh, at the family home because of the Great Plague of London, yeah. 1665, 1667. So um, the, the bottom line is that somehow astronomy has always found favour among the public at large so it always survives people want to know these things generally we're interested in our origins and what the destiny of our species and our planet is and astronomy is the way that you find out about those and what's next for you oh um that's a really interesting question uh at the moment i'm in a mode where I'm incredibly fortunate to have a job. I'm so far past my use-by date, it's not funny. <laughs> but the thought of retiring is not something that's kind of on the horizon because there's so much to tell people <laughs> about the universe. Uh, and I'm very fortunate in that I still get paid to do that. So the, my job is astronomer at large. I work for the Department of Industry, Science, Energy and Resources, it was a joke at first. What will we do? What will we call Fred? Well, he was the astronomer in charge. If you make him astronomer at large, you've only got to change four letters on the office. <laughs> um, but um, so somebody put that to the minister for industry, science, and technology, and she she loved it, Karen Andrews. But it means that I can do things like we're doing now, just to get the message out that there's so much going on. Science is full of excitement at the moment, not just astronomy. But, you know, physics, the life sciences, COVID-19 has focused attention on the life sciences in a way that has never been done before, probably. A lot of people now know what the difference is between a virus and a, and a bacterium. Yeah. All of that sort of thing. So and there's all we live in a golden age almost of science, which is why I can't stop talking about it. So what's next for me? I hope more of the same. Eventually, something will fall off and I'll have to stop, but uh, I'm, hoping, I'm <laughs> hoping somebody will tell me if it's that I wander on too far and ramble on. <laughs> somebody should tell Fred to shut up. He doesn't know what he's talking about. That's probably a good note to finish on. That. <laughs> yeah. He rides off into the sunset, <laughs> yeah. babbling away. Back to Coonabarra. Yeah, to Coonabarra, walk, exactly. walk down that corridor. Yeah. <laughs> Bye, Fred. Yeah. yeah, no, thank you very much for chatting with us. Well, it's a great pleasure. It's been a delight to talk to you both. Thank you very much for coming and asking me to be part of it. Thank you, Fred, for sitting down and describing a day in the life of an astronomer and what you guys really do. What Fred didn't mention in the interview was that he's won many prestigious prizes for communicating astronomy to the public and basically promoting the general understanding of science. He has. He's really made it accessible to everyone. And we finally know what's in that telescope <laughs> on top of the mountain. But do we? Do we know what they do and what they're discovering? Not really. <laughs> but if you would like to find out more, go to the Warren Bungles, go to Siding Spring and go stargazing. And on that note, we are going to leave with a little bit of an excerpt of Fred's folk music. Enjoy. Why is Uranus upside down? 
Why is the planet the wrong way round? Why is Uranus? Why is it upside down? This episode was produced by Rihanna Mooney, music by Nate Skulls. Make sure you subscribe and leave a review if you're feeling generous and follow our journey on all of our social media pages.